0: listening to the Philanthropisms podcast with Rodri Davis. Hello, you're listening to the Philanthropisms podcast. This is a podcast where we try to put philanthropy in context. I'm your host, as ever, Rodri Davis, uh, and this week we have an interview, uh, and it's with Ben Soskis. Uh, now, Ben is a senior research associate at the Center on Nonprofits and Philanthropy at the Urban Institute in the US, which is a big think tank over there. Uh, he's also uh, one of the editors of Histville, which is a website that pulls together writing on the history of philanthropy from academics and practitioners. Um, and it's one of my favorite resources, as you can imagine. Um, and I've known Ben for a while now. He's been a guest on a previous podcast that I hosted, the Caf Giving Thought podcast. Uh, and we've subsequently managed to meet in person at a conference and speak on a panel. And he's certainly somebody who's thinking and writing on philanthropy I always look out for because it's always interesting and it kind of challenges and informs my own thinking. So it was great to have a chance to to sit down with Ben. Um, And this time um, I decided to take the sort of focus of what we were talking about to be what's happened in philanthropy and particularly philanthropy in the US over the last few years because obviously there's been a lot of debate around philanthropy already and then the impact of the pandemic has sort of shifted narratives and thinking about philanthropy in lots of interesting ways and I wanted to get some insights and thoughts from Ben on that. So we sat down a couple of weeks ago now and it's worth saying that because actually some of the things that we discuss um, about um, things like kind of Mackenzie Scott's giving uh, and Elon Musk's philanthropy, which are things that we discuss in the podcast, um, have moved on since then. Um, kind of new news stories have come up and there've been new developments in them. Uh, so just bear in mind that that even though this kind of covers some of those, it doesn't necessarily take into account uh, some of the things that have happened more recently. Um, but yeah, we discussed a whole load of things. We discussed the impact of the pandemic on philanthropy, on the narratives that we have about philanthropy, sort of public perceptions of philanthropy. Um, we talked about uh, the uh, the rise of direct cash giving again, you know, something that sort of seemed to be quite prominent as part of the response to the philanthropy and the more of a uh, the pandemic and a sort of focus on cash giving and whether that would herald a, a longer term shift in in philanthropy. Linked to that is also the idea of there's kind of a renewed focus on everyday giving and giving at more modest levels, particularly in the US at the moment. Um, and quite a few big philanthropists and philanthropic institutions are sort of getting on board with that. And talked about a bit about you know why that is and what we need to sort of watch out for there. Uh, and then we talked about some of the sort of specific big givers and their stories that have been in the press over the last couple of years and, and what's interesting about them. So as I say, we talked about Mackenzie Scott, uh, we talked about Jeff Bezos as well and Bill Gates in passing. Uh, and then we talked about Elon Musk's emergence onto the philanthropic scene and what that might mean for kind of norms about how we talk about philanthropy. Um, so without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Um, Um, It's a really good one, so I hope you enjoy it. And I will be back at the end for the usual bit of housekeeping and admin. Okay, great. So I'm here with Ben Soskis. Hi, Ben. Hello. And Ben is a Senior Research Associate um, in the Centre on Nonprofits and Philanthropy at the Urban Institute and also the co-editor of Histville, which is one of my favourite websites, all about the history of philanthropy. Um, and someone that I've kind of you know talked to uh, a lot about issues around philanthropy and we've got a kind of shared interest in the history of it and how that kind of informs thinking about it in the present day. So I was very keen to get Ben on uh, to have a conversation, um, particularly about what's been going on in philanthropy and particularly kind of US philanthropy over the last few years in light of the pandemic. Um, So maybe the best place to start, Ben, would just be um, for you to kind of give us some framing thoughts on how you feel the pandemic has shifted perceptions of philanthropy in the US. Sure. Um, Well, I'll I'll focus on perceptions of philanthropy. There's a
1: separate question about how it's shifted or perhaps not shifted the practice of philanthropy. Um, and I think that those are both, both equally important to, to, um, to spend some time on. Um, so um, I, you know, early in, in the pandemic, um, I, I noted uh, a kind of one type of framing uh, of philanthropy as facing a test um, and that the pandemic would be a kind of defining test of, um, of, of philanthropy. And I, you know, I think this made some sense because in the years preceding philanthropy, uh, the, the pandemic, th- there was a, you know, a kind of mounting sense of, of uneasiness. Um, the critiques were surging. I think you could say there was a, um, the kind of, um, legitimation of philanthropy was more precarious than it's been, you know, in the past. And so I think for various reasons, um, a whole different sides of that, uh, of that, um, uh, argument um, latched onto the pandemic as a moment uh, to test philanthropy, and what's interesting to me is, is um, you know, I don't think we're going to get uh, an answer that's satisfying, um, and and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One um, is th- about the nature of the pandemic itself. It is really hard to determine the temporal vantage point. Um, that, that it makes sense to actually assess uh, philanthropy's contributions um you know we're still in the midst of, of the pandemic and, and you know by almost all accounts and um and i think um you know, there was a kind of surge of uh, of uh kind of commendation in the early moments when the vaccine was um kind of on the horizon uh, then there was a, a like a, a low moment. Um, when it was very clear that the vaccine would not be equitably distributed. Um, and I think we're kind of at a time now where there's a lot of um, you know there there was there was also a, a celebration of of a kind of the generosity of of ordinary people. I think we're we're sort of past that that moment. and you know taking a step back, what you have is both a sense of failed opportunities. So you know philanthropy was not able to manage uh, and and to uh, assist in in the kind of equitable um, distribution of a COVID vaccine, but also that that at some basic level, philanthropy helped to produce that vaccine in the first place. And so this counterfactual of, in the absence of philanthropy, would things have been much, much worse, I think still um, kind of um, hovers over a lot of the debate. Um, and so there is there there doesn't seem to be a kind of a complete vindication of one side or the other. Uh, and what I think is going to happen is that because of that, you know, not so surprisingly, the pandemic is going to be a touchpoint um, for decades. I mean, I, I really, I do believe this. Um, both sides are are going to um, uh, you know you point to the pandemic as justifying either a kind of you know a, a affirmation of, of philanthropy or a critique of philanthropy. But it's it's not going to be satisfying. It really isn't, um, and you know maybe that's uh, maybe that's not so surprising. Um, I, I think. I mean, I, I wrote a piece um, midway through last year where I, I called the pandemic a failed COVID test, and and you know I, I meant that a little bit, I guess, tongue in cheek. Um, but but you know, the ultimate meaning of that phrase to me was that if we were looking at the pandemic to give us some kind of ultimate answers about how philanthropy functions in our society um, and, and to offer either complete leg- leg- legitimation or, you know, com- complete, um, uh, you know, uh, like disaffirmation, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think we'll get it. And I think what many folks, you know, like me, and I, I assume like you are left with is, you know, kind of not so different than when we entered the pandemic. I think uneasiness with the role philanthropy played, a realization that in many ways it it represents you know deep and enduring um, problems in about the um unequal distribution of wealth but also understanding the value that it that it does hold and um you know that's i think the kind of ambivalence that that is going to de- that really defines the the moment that we're in
0: yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think it's it certainly feels as though, I mean, I guess that naive expectation that we might have had, and I certainly felt feel and count myself as guilty of this, that in those early stages of the pandemic, it was easy to get caught up in the sense of, oh, well, everything's changed forever, you in, know, in, up to and including philanthropy, and it will probably clarify, you know, or answer some of those questions in one direction or another. And actually, the reality is, depending on your point of view about philanthropy, you can probably pick or choose aspects of the pandemic as you could with most other things to to back up that argument. I mean, there's definitely a case that, you know, if you believe in the sort of innovative power or the power of discovery of philanthropy, you can certainly find arguments in favour of that in terms of what they, they did in terms of funding vaccine research. But then equally, I guess, the huge upsurge of interest in things like mutual aid suggests that there's a wider dissatisfaction with some of the power imbalances in traditional approaches to philanthropy. So, um, you know, it definitely feels as though it's complicated the picture rather than simplified it. Um, do you get any sense of that, that some of those issues that, that maybe people like you or I have been kind of thinking about for a while have um, become more a part of sort of wider public discourse or there's kind of more awareness of them as issues um, among the general public because of the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I do I think the interest in critiques of philanthropy was mounting before the pandemic, so it's not. I mean, I don't think there's a radical kind of rupture in in the way that uh, the public understood uh, uh, philanthropy before and after. I do think it's it, it it amplified many of those critiques. I mean, two the two things you mentioned, I think, are are really interesting. To I I always thought that one of the problems with um, the way that I think many people approached the critique of philanthropy, critique of, of mega philanthropy, was this this issue of a counterfactual? You know, what was the alternative? And one thing that I think the the current moment has done, especially with respect to this idea of a you know, a, a people's vaccine or you know the, um, the a, a challenge to a kind of philanthropy model of vaccine uh, manufacture and distribution, in which you know basically the vaccine is privately um, uh, manufactured and then. You know, allocated through um, the uh, goodwill of of nation states or private philanthropies or uh, multilateral institutions. You know that philanthropy model, ha- I think, has faced a really fundamental challenge, which is intelligible to many many people now in a way that perhaps it wasn't in in, in the past. You know, so when you say the philanthropy the philanthropy model just doesn't um, doesn't work, um, you know, I. I I think there is now a kind of alternative model that that makes sense in in a very kind of visceral way and and a a way that I think has gotten a lot of um, attention and um, and, and scrutiny. Um, And so I think that um, that's something really important uh, and and that I think will won't just color uh, and shape the way people think about philanthropy's relationship to public health, but philanthropy's relationship to all public goods. Um, that that you know there is this uh, there is not there's always an alternative and I think people sometimes would gesture kind of grandly and somewhat uh, you know abstractly to kind of socialism or or uh, you know the alternatives to capitalism often this you, you hear this a lot in the in the um, kind of U.S. debate um, yeah you know, but without without a, a real plan or you know it, it's it's it, it, the alternative the actual practical alternative that, that they were proposing was often kind of submerged in the critique the current debate around the vaccines is is not like that at all and and i think that that's really important and so you know i i, uh, I think it's and it's not ended. Uh, so that that i think will be a kind of model for critics to uh, to point to and to use to kind of uh, help frame a kind of a, a more general critique of private philanthropy. i mean you you mentioned mutual aid, And, um, you know, I I think there is one thing um, that we saw even before the pandemic, but certainly in the first, you know, first half of the pandemic, there was an enormous uh, attention, um, not just to mutual aid, but to kind of smaller scale uh, acts of generosity and kindness. And, um, you know, kind of paralleling this this idea of, um, you know, mega philanthropy facing this test, there was this other narrative about, um, the kind of you know uh, um, uh demotic like everyday giving um that could really be harnessed and was inc- an incredibly powerful force and I, I think in some respects that does function as as a critique of philanthropy as well. I don't think it always does um i I think often you know often th- those two things can can coexist um and so you know the the uh, one one question about um, that combines both the uh, the practice and perception of of giving during the um, uh, the pandemic, and one that I think you've written really well about. Rod um, is this idea of you know we saw a lot of attention to mutual aid uh, and um, even, you know not just attention but also increased practice and enthusiasm for and. What the kind of long-term consequences of that might be in terms of how people think about um, generosity and giving uh, and the, that, the relationship between those types of behaviors to what we call philanthropy uh, you know, is, is, a pretty, is an important question I, I don't think we have a great answer to yet. There is now a, a, a lot of, of interest among researchers to try to go beyond the kind of traditional understanding of what, what constitutes charitable giving. Um, at least in the U.S. context, which is um, financial contributions to um, tax-deductible nonprofit organizations, and you know that um, to include person-to-person giving, um, mutual aid, um, and I think there is the kind of implicit um, critique there, or sometimes explicit critique there, of the way in which you know our focus on nonprofits and and the financialized forms of philanthropy is uh, enables a kind of veneration of, of elite philanthropy. Um and you know, and that, that we should um kind of recalibrate the way we think about you know what what's worthy of praise and what's and what's worthy of attention. Um and in fact you know there's there's been efforts to kind of reclaim this idea of philanthropy itself. You know, who is a philanthropist? It's not just Bill Gates or maybe not maybe it's not Bill Gates. It really should be uh, the people who um you know made major sacrifices. Uh, During the pandemic, um, whether financial or otherwise, without being um, incredibly rich, and and as as a researcher who really does focus on on, um, philanthropy, meaning large scale giving, um, you know I'm torn about this because I I actually I completely agree with um, you know with the kind of sentiment and the idea that. That, that we should um, value and, um, and, and be attentive to uh, the vast range of, of giving behaviors out there. Um, but I, I also, you know as somebody who um, thinks about power, um, I think that kind of maintaining a focus on large-scale giving uh, reflects the kind of brutal realities of the political economy that we exist in, in which um, a few people have enormous amounts of money and, and can wield enormous amounts of power, and so I, you know, I'm 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 maybe even in the minority, kind of wanting to maintain that kind of um, exclusive definition of philanthropy, in a sense, even if it, it sometimes insults a uh, more like expansive, um, uh, you know, uh, celebration of, of of other types of forms of giving. I, I do think it then reflects real imbalances of power.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think on that, I mean, the language question is really interesting because I mean, I, I absolutely buy the arguments that there are wider forms of sort of generosity and, and altruistic behaviour that we should pay more attention to. And perhaps, you know, we've had a slightly kind of narrow focus on particularly sort of financial financial transactions as the main mode of thinking, and that's overly limited. But then do we expand the definition of philanthropy to encompass those or do we increase our lexicon and keep philanthropy as a separate piece of terminology that talks about something quite particular. Um, I was going to ask, actually, I think one of the things I think is really interesting in terms of this increased focus on everyday giving is the I mean i don 't know whether I can class it as a trend at the moment because i don't have the the evidence to back that up, but I do have a sense that there are a growing number of larger donors, sort of elite donors and institutional funders who are kind of interested in in the idea of encouraging mass giving and everyday giving as part of what they do as a sort of you know even if it 's not their kind of core area of focus, something that they see as a wider good that they can justify as part of their philanthropic mission but do you think there is any element of that whether consciously or not that is partly about sort of deliberately wanting to elide the distinction between philanthropy understood in the elite sense and the everyday sense because perhaps that acts as something of a, an antidote to some of the arguments about the kind of anti-democratic nature of philanthropy which always seemed to me much more pointed at the elite end than they are at the kind of everyday giving end. So it's actually, I don't know whether I'm being overly cynical, but it seems as though there's (laughs) obviously a kind of element of enlightened self-interest for the elite philanthropist in saying, oh, no, 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 you know, it's that's philanthropy too. And it's all part of the same wonderful broad picture. Yeah, that's, I think it's a great point. It's sort of the version of
1: what I was suggesting that, that those distinctions actually are, can be useful in maintaining that Mm. critique. Um, but but you know but you're also you're 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 right that I think at least from a researcher's perspective there is a, a, um, a now a real interest in in sh- in shifting some focus and attention um, and I think you know it, it, it's not so surprising uh, I, there's you know it, it, I think you can trace it to a couple of 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 reasons and and one is something that I know you've looked at pretty closely um, which is the trend from really the last two decades of a kind of declining participation rates in uh, in, uh, you know, C3 giving um, in giving to nonprofits that that, you know, I think a lot of the attention has come from the fundraising community. um, And that that worries them. Um, And and it and it converges with the kind of general concerns about uh, kind of democratic um, and civic life Not just in the the United States, but you know, in many many places. So that you know, I think um, the that those concerns and those anxieties have have been channeled into um, into attention on you know what what is what is behind that uh, that decline. And if you want to ask that question in an honest way, you first have to ask whether there really is a decline in giving. I mean, meaning like is. Are we are we seeing a redefinition of giving or a kind of rechanneling of giving or are we seeing an actual decline of giving and so uh, what's interesting in, in the u.s context is there's a bunch of, of um, research efforts underway and i and there there's a kind of um you know there's they're often um, kind of straddling between these two positions which is one a real fear about decline of giving to Um, You know, tax exempt nonprofit organizations and, you know, uh, almost a sense of crisis around those figures and then a sense of possibility or kind of, you know, a a less a less um, crisis oriented inquiry, um, which is, um, you know, committed to a a more expansive vision of what um, giving um, means and that is open to this idea that actually people are just giving differently as opposed to giving less um, and so i think that's one that's one um, issue but I, there there has been a lot of attention on you know on on smaller scale um, acts of giving and i do think that part of that attention does represent as we said before you know a discomfort with um with how much with with the imbalance of attention and celebration that elite giving gets to. So there there is there is a kind of implicit critique there. And, and you know, there's a historical, there's um historical um precedence for this. Early in the 20th century, kind of at the at the beginning of of mass fundraising, um, and a lot of this fundraising back then was was really focused on on um health campaigns. You know, some of the most effective uh campaigns were built around this idea that you know, don't let rich people get all the favor as philanthropists. You know, you can also you can also make the contributions that matter, and and you know, say the the early campaigns for tuberculosis uh, and so on. So that that that's been a kind of powerful strain in in um the language of 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 mobilizing givers. Um, at the same time, you know, back in the early twentieth century, uh, elite givers um, and and sort of large, large uh, wealthy people really started. Uh, thinking about how they could expand the giving base as a way to kind of slough off their own responsibilities. Uh, you know, the, 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 there was worries about how much of the charitable burden they would have to bear. Um, and and they started sometimes sometimes implicitly but sometimes actually in ways that really dramatically echo um current um rhetoric, you know, talking about the kind of democratization of giving, the democratization of philanthropy. And I think you and I both share kind of suspicion of that language um, uh, because that, you, know, it, you really have to kind of inquire into what's behind it and what the motives are. But I think it's fair to say that that language can be used quite cynically, um, but you can't deny that it has this critical edge or that has, a, has the potentials for a kind of critical edge directed towards large scale um, giving from the
0: wealthy no absolutely I think that sort of that implicit criticism is a yeah is a really interesting point and and certainly as you were saying um just just a little while ago about that idea that you know how we interpret the potential phenomenon of there being a declining uh level of participation in giving and whether that is a genuine phenomenon or whether it's actually just that we're broadening our behavior into other areas and and that is then looking like a resulting uh drop in giving to what what would have been seen as sort of traditional nonprofits. profits yeah, to me that I mean this one of the most interesting questions there is the one of if if there is something going on and people are sort of shifting their behaviors and giving elsewhere you know in some sense does that matter and and actually rather than people in the more traditional non-profit world just going well it's terrible because we've got less money what is the more positive case if there is one that can be made for the the remaining unique value of people giving money with no expectation of a financial return to a legal structure like a 501c3 or a registered charity you know does that serve a purpose that some of these other potential approaches don't because if not it sort of seems to me that we shouldn't be particularly bothered about it but if if it if there is something that's in danger of being lost we need to be much clearer about what that is um rather than just assuming that that everyone kind of knows what the value of that kind of giving is
1: yeah, that's a, that's a terrific point. I think to some extent, the language of decline, you know, and and, and the way that we've um, studied a lot of these um, these trends are is through a kind of charting of rising um, numbers or falling numbers, and and that focus can sometimes really um, evade exactly the questions you're asking, which is you know, what kind of questions about purpose mm. and and fundamental rationales, and and you know, I, I think it's it's probably a good thing um, for. Uh, for that conversation to be happening now, you know, it's a different type of conversation about more or less, um, which I think is really how, how a lot of the, um, the, the discourse around, um, the kind of giving numbers and, and, um, is, is often framed. So that, yeah, I, I, I welcome that. Um, I think, you know, and, and, um, there's been pretty profound shifts, not just in, um, how, you know, not just in the fundamental legal structures that, that shape, um, giving in, in, um, in the U S at least. Um, but even within, uh, within those structures, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of shift to, from uh, membership based organizations in which, you know, financial contributions are, um, sometimes subordinated to, or at least co-equal with engagement and, and, um, you know, a personal kind of involvement, um, versus, uh, a model in which the giving itself is the way in one, um, defines, One's relationship to the organization, you know that, that and that was uh, scholars like Freda scotchpole and others have written about. You know, it was a pretty profound shift that that occurred um, in the second half of the twentieth century, as you got more kind of centralized organizations that sucked in um, finances and uh, and then redistributed them um, themselves, as opposed to a kind of more federated structure that that really um, relied on on people's um, uh, membership you know there there's i think it's valuable to kind of think through um those questions as well and I, I do think you know that the technological innovations of the last couple of of decades you know can and, and maybe even the kind of um the advent of 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 and popularity of of zoom and other kinds of modes of of being and communicating. You know, I think what it means to to give and and to be a member of, of an organization now um, might be in a state of flux um, as well. And so, you know, this is a good time um, to be having some of those conversations and thinking about you know the the relationship between giving um, and and identifying and being a member of these organizations.
0: Yeah, I don't. I absolutely agree. I think that the whole question of sort of participation and what it means and and whether traditional nonprofits i mean I, I often think there's there's an argument to be made that a lot of them have fallen into a trap of of do, viewing things through too transactional a lens and and undervaluing actually the desire for participation amongst people who might otherwise be supporting them and just seeing them as as kind of sources of of financial income and maybe that's why they're or one reason why they're losing out to some of these kind of you know grassroots movements and social movements that are organizing more online in kind of less hierarchical ways um, I think, is, you know, it's a hypothesis that needs testing. Um, one thing as well, it made me think of is, as is, is you're saying there about the kind of, you know, centralization of, um, of some of these approaches in the nonprofit world into organizations. I wonder whether um, technology is actually bringing us full circle back round to kind of much older models of giving when it comes to the giving of cash. And I'm thinking here of the kind of, direct person-to-person giving that we're seeing a lot more of and, and mm. some of that is kind of done in through the auspices of organizations the kind of slightly more theoretical approach of direct cash transfers that organizations like GiveDirectly are doing but also it seems to me there's this huge growing area of people just giving directly to other individuals through Venmo and Cash App and that kind of thing I mean what's your take on on sort of how we should be interpreting that in relation to to sort of more traditional philanthropy?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so when I when I was thinking about what what would actually be an enduring consequence of, of the pandemic, you know, and you know, I know there was a lot of attention to increased payout rates and you know and, and some and some shifts in, in practice, I, I think the increased popularity of cash as a as a uh instrument of 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 philanthropy very well might likely be if not the most, one of the most important developments that came out of the pandemic, and and you know, as I think you alluded to, it's it's not the case that this is entirely new. I mean, cash has been really since the '90s, um, both in through governmental transfer programs and and then in, in some humanitarian aid and some philanthropic uh, programs. You know, cash has 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 been increasing in in popularity pretty steadily, but the pandemic was a moment at which you know it was it was sort of Pretty shocking. Uh, almost every crisis of the last couple of decades, at least ones I can remember and paid close attention to, there was always a kind of central charitable organization um, that people rallied around. You know, and often in in the U.S. context, there was often the Red Cross. Not always, you know. And early in the pandemic, there really wasn't one. And, and in part that was because the pandemic really hit so many different places in, in different ways. But there was a, a a time at which Give Directly, this this charity, that Basically uh, facilitates direct cash transfers initially in Africa, but um, it's it's developed uh, some some work in the U.S. When, when that was be- that had become the kind of um, celebrity charity of the moment, um, and it was it was really striking. I mean that that was something that the the idea that. You know, give directly had been a kind of—I uh, don't want to say a niche. Uh, it, it was, I think, celebrated by the effective altruists community. Um, you know, GiveWell was a big champion, but it was being—you know—highlighted by Ariana Grande and you know a whole bunch of of, of celebrities. And I think this idea of giving people. Cash directly touched on a kind of really primal nerve, and and I I think you can make an argument that it's that it it kind of um, enacted a a partial reconciliation between these contending traditions of of philanthropy, you know, which has long defined itself against charitable giving. Charitable giving basically uh, to being defined as sort of aid to address immediate suffering, whereas philanthropy was addressed to kind of root causes and larger systems and structures. But there was this moment in which those two um, almost dichotomous approaches seemed to kind of converge in the sense of, you know, we need that you can, by giving people money, you can also begin to make longer term changes, that there was something very powerful in the the gesture itself. And, And then the the kind of uh, respect for individual agency and autonomy. Um, and, and that, you know, it wasn't necessarily the kind of reactionary move of, you know, uh, ignoring kind of large structural issues um, that, that had, had sometimes been critiqued. And during the pandemic, you know, you, we had a moment in which speed, you know, this is another interesting dynamic that kind of I think flipped a lot of the traditional um, norms associated with philanthropy. Going back, you know, one thing that philanthropy tended to pride itself on was its, you know, its like judiciousness, its sense of long-term time horizons, you know, its patience, um, its willingness, often to the frustration of people who, who ask for money to you know, take its time and to uh, you know do thinking that couldn't be rushed, et cetera, et cetera. Even before the pandemic, we saw increased interest in rapid response giving, but speed became a kind of philanthropic virtue in a way that, you know, I don't think we've seen in, in, for, for a long time. Um, you know, there was a real sense that government was not providing aid quickly enough and, and that, you know, clearly I I don't think there are any major donors who thought that philanthropy could literally substitute for government, but there was a, a, recognition or an acknowledgement that getting money out the door as quickly as possible was a powerful act, um, an act that also was tied to the the increased focus on equity and on um, power imbalances. And and, and so the the cash took on these much larger meanings, um, I think in in a very powerful way, And and so you had a number of major donors um, and major foundations that, you know, had never experimented with cash before. I'm thinking of of foundations like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, who began to experiment uh, with cash. And I've I've thought about what this could mean. You know, clearly, again, foundations and philanthropy does not have enough money to take on large deficiencies in social welfare. But- And so, you know, there's always a question of what will these cash experiments, the direct cash giving, will they just stop once some definition of crisis ends? Uh, I think there's two interesting things to think about there. One is, you know, which crisis? I think, you know, in in many respects, um, you know, cash was a response to the pandemic, but there are multiple crises that are afflicting populations all, all over the world, you know, crises of economic precarity, crises of uh, racial injustice. And so, you know, the logic that led one to um, turn to cash during a pandemic could could be applied much more generally. And, and so a terminal point of one crisis doesn't necessarily suggest a terminal point of any other crisis. crisis. Um, so, you know, I, I think when some of these experiments end, Will be an interesting moment in terms of how they think about what constitutes a crisis. But the other question is, um, you know, in, in, in humanitarian aid organizations, there's been something of a push, and this is something that, that, you know, Give Directly has has championed to think about cash transfers as a benchmark. You know, we know that cash is pretty cost effective. Um, in, in fact, you know, it's quite cost effective, and we know. Um, that it's a way to kind of honor the agency of of recipients to to do as as they see fit to spend money in ways that that um, they think it can help. So, given that fact, it places a kind of burden on on the donor to beat cash, and I think that's a really valuable experiment to always be doing. Precisely so you can maintain that benchmark. I mean, it is really valuable. I think to have to have to defend one's own prerogatives as a donor and one's own sense of, of um, you know, uh, preferences. And, and, you know, it, it, that that is something that um, is, it can only be valuable in the, in the same way that I think investors, um, you know, should be able to beat an index fund. If they want to dabble in the market, um, you know, they have to basically... Be able to defend that um and justify it. So I I am hoping that some of these cash experiments really extend you know quite far into the future as a kind of you know as a kind of uh chastening um exercise for donors. Um and and you know and I think I think that that could be a kind of permanent change that we could see. That, you know, I, I would certainly welcome it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that point about it being a, a benchmark is really important because it was sort of strikes me in the context of international development. If if through sort of giving through large INGOs and international aid agencies, you can't provably be doing more good than, good than just giving the money directly to people on the ground. Then you should probably question why you're doing that with all the associated kind of costs and complexity that it that it has. So as a as a kind of constant test it's really important um, i'm just going to ask actually because when you were talking there, i think i think this whole question of i i can't work out how to uh to what terminology to use i in my own head i kind of call it the re-charitization of philanthropy but it's an absolutely hideous kind of neologism <laughs> but, but this idea that actually you know that kind of historical split between charity and philanthropy we're actually seeing sort of the two come back together, at least ostensibly, in in interesting ways. But it strikes me there's kind of there are different reasons that donors might arrive at the same end result. And and you mentioned there the sort of interest of the effective altruist community in something like Give Directly. And it strikes me that comes from very much the sort of most rational end of the market, which is. Actually, they've just found that the economic evidence is that this is a good way to deliver the sorts of outcomes that they're interested in, so it makes sense on that basis. And they're not really, you know, that's the the driving force behind them doing it. But then there might be a separate set of people for whom the interest is in addressing issues of power imbalance, and then actually it's less Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. that. It's more about the agency that you give to people by empowering them through giving them cash directly. And and what I wanted to ask, actually, is sort of, I think that and what you were saying there about the... timeliness and sense of urgency of philanthropy um the obvious place to go there it seems to me is kind of Mackenzie Scott and what she's been doing and giving because she sure, she sure. seems to combine these things really interestingly and the thing I can't work out in my own head and I'll be really interested in your take on this is 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 Mackenzie Scott's rationale for doing this is more the latter in terms of the sort of shift of power and recognizing some of the power imbalances in philanthropy and that's why she's taking the approach to giving that she's taking As a thought experiment, could she be comfortable with the idea of producing measurably worse outcomes in in the sense that an effective altruist might measure things, but say, actually, it's better to have done it in the way that I do it, even if I could produce better outcomes by taking a more sort of paternalistic top-down approach? Or is that still a question that that remains to be answered because we don't quite know what her, her approach is?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and I think it's also a question about what you mean by measurably yeah. worse. I mean, so if if you, I mean, I, I think whether or not we think about the agency and um, you know and and autonomy of of, uh, of beneficiaries as you know as part of of what what we how we define an outcome, um, it, it makes that question even more complicated to to adjudicate. Um, but I think I think um, I mean part of this is because the, the that it's a very good question and and i don't think we know and part of it is because scott herself has not been tremendously transparent about some of the calculations that she's making and we, we we've been given you know medium posts um and it's a kind of confessional style i think of uh, of a philanthropic persona which can be very powerful uh, in that you know it's, it's a kind of more it leans more to the literary end of the spectrum than, say a giving pledge letter but you know the some of the trade-offs that almost any approach has has, um, are, you know, she's not directly engaging in, and, and it's because the process itself is is kind of behind closed doors. Um, there's not a, you know, we don't have a a chance to kind of push on 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 those questions, and you know, or, or to see a kind of potential range. You know, what what are some of the other ways that that she could give, you know, that or or you know, who else was she contemplating that didn't that didn't pass muster, and that you know would give us more of a of a clearer sense about um exactly what her priorities are. So I mean that, that's a good example of in some sense she's has a very powerful you know a very powerful philanthropic persona and and you know is speaking directly to to the public but you know as as we both know she, it's off it's also one of the least transparent um, uh, ways of, of giving you know it's it, we, we doesn't she doesn't have a foundation she relies on intermediaries and and advisors who are um you know have been entirely um, silent about you know their their thinking and their approach and, and their, uh, who, who they're who they're consulting and so you know I I think there is a lot of I wouldn't be surprised if Scott's model the model of of reliance on intermediaries and a kind of diffuse network of advisors becomes more more of a, of a norm. I mean, I think that's something that, that we might be seeing. We, I would not be surprised if that's one of the defining characteristics of the next couple of decades of, of big giving. And and, and I think what that, what that means is that we'll have a lot of these conversations where we just don't know. You know, we, we just don't, we're, we're not entirely clear about the process and therefore we're not entirely clear about the principles themselves. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't mean to, to punt the question, but I think it points to a, a kind of a larger, you know, r- really important dynamic. But but I, But I don't want to minimize... You know, I think in a lot of the coverage of of Scott, you you now get people say, talking about, uh, you know, she's not transparent. Um, this is a problem. I, I don't want to minimize the fact that what she is doing is, you know, it's pretty bold, um, and and offers a pretty stark challenge to the kind of technocratic models that have really defined philanthropy, uh, large scale philanthropy for the last couple of decades. Um, anyway, and it's it's this really interesting. We're in this kind of interesting moment now. Because you step back, especially with with kind of Bill Gates's, um, some something of Bill Gates's star fading a bit, and you, know, you try to think about what are the norms of large scale giving? Who are the people who are defining these these norms? You know, for for. For a while, for at least a decade, I think you really could point to Gates himself as the defining normative figure in philanthropy. That you know, he 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 was the he both defined philanthropy to the public, but also I think for a lot of other um younger donors, he he um offered a model that they could emulate. Um, of you know of, of a kind of technocratic approach a, a data driven approach approach that was you know rooted in a large philanthropic bureaucracy but that had an enormous scope and ambitions and, and now you have a you have a you have a real diversity a kind of fracturing a, a, of norms uh you you have someone like Scott who you know who who offers a really different model and and I think a model that now if you're kind of a an emerging philanthropist or, or even however you want to define that term right either either someone with lots of money or someone who does not but, but wants to give I think you have to contend with that model, but you know I, I know that, that we we were sort of joking about this before you also have someone like Elon Musk who in a sense his defining characteristics is is a public rejection of of, of any norms right like this idea that that there are there are no um no uh, uh giving norms that, that he has to follow that that basically philanthropy is indistinguishable from a kind of a form of trolling um that that he seems to delight in, but that is fundamentally public, right? So the interesting thing about someone like um, Musk is that if for a long time, he, he insisted that giving was his private affair. He had no interest in in discussing anything publicly, uh, and therefore, the norm itself was just a norm of, of discretion of, of of privacy, which is you know has a long tradition. Um, it's something that has been claimed by a number of other tech givers before him, and you know this is someone like Steve Jobs, for instance. And and that and that was um, I think sometimes an excuse for sometimes kind of bled into this idea of, you know, my my giving is actually my work, you know, something you couldn't really, and that was a, another another argument about, you know, basically, I don't have to engage publicly as a philanthropist, leave me alone. But now we have this idea of I do have to engage publicly as a philanthropist. I enjoy engaging publicly as a philanthropist. And my engagement is going to be based on, on, you know, on on the sense of antagonizing the public kind of celebrating my own idiosyncrasies, you know, and, and what does that do to this idea of what are philanthropic norms today? Um, You know, what, what, you know, honestly, it's 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 sort of it's sort of bizarre for someone who's been following this pretty closely. Um, but I think you know what you really have is is a you know, like a, an expanding palette of of approaches to philanthropy that I I we are in a moment when there is the kind of defining norms are as volatile. You know, I think as they've ever been. Um, I'd say or at least at least been in in last several decades. So you know. Somewhat frightening, um, but also, I think, a, a moment of real possibility and, and uh, you know, of uh, excitement uh, in the space.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And I, th- I think it's I mean, it's it's a fascinating time. And as you say, the kind of the fact that there's um, the ability to disintermediate the communication between the philanthropist and the public. And it doesn't have to be kind of filtered through institutional norms anymore means that we might get these kind of entirely unvarnished presentations of people's views on philanthropy, which is fascinating. Because I guess, it, I mean, in a way, it harks back to, you know, some of uh, times kind of 100 years ago or more when you, you got many more philanthropists writing essays outlining their sort of philosophies of of giving. But in that sense, I guess they were kind of, you know, still quite considered pieces that were then published in in sort of mainstream outlets, whereas now you get the version where it's Elon Musk just decides to come up with a thread on Twitter at yeah. eleven o 'clock at night telling you what he thinks about <laughs> yeah. about stuff, and you know it 's probably going to be slightly problematic, but then at the same time you 've got you know as you say the kind of the the default mode for presenting vast gifts now is no longer for the philanthropist to kind of line up and have a, a photo shoot and and talk to the new york times it 's to write a post on medium and if if you're Mackenzie Scott, that entails a kind of quite introspective literary take that acknowledges all of the problems with philanthropy. And if you're Elon Musk, it really doesn't. It's something very different. Um, and, I, I, yeah, I do. I think it will be fascinating. I I, I wonder, actually, on, to your point on, on Musk and the impact that he will have. I mean, I think, you know, he, he certainly has a kind of Trumpian vibe about him in terms of the way that he uses the possibilities of sort of directly... Putting forward his views to the to the public for better or worse, um, and I wonder whether one immediate knock on effect of that will be that that narrative that has always been there in his his previous thoughts on philanthropy and and in the the thoughts of people I think like um, Sergey Brin and Larry Page and others, which is not only that the you know the way in which I make money and the fact that I'm a big employer means that you know that's basically a part of my philanthropy. I think there's something about the particular mindset of tech donors which is you know they ve- they very firmly believe the things that they are building or have built have at least as much social value as anything they could ever do through philanthropy and and you know with somebody like um elon musk I, you know i'd imagine if pushed on it he'd start talking about his experiments with bringing space flight to a mass market you know that that to him i think is indistinguishable from anything that we might otherwise class as philanthropy and and again is that okay, or is that sort of problematic? And is it something that we need to sort of challenge as a as an argument? I don't I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I mean that for a while that was Musk's argument. I mean, he, yeah. he's made that argument explicitly. What's interesting now is that he's he he ha- he's recognized for whatever reason that that's not adequate, or at least that he's not mm. satisfied with that. So he's he's shifted a bit to sort of his more direct engagement about what his you know what else he'll be doing. Yeah, and, and but it's a great question. I think you know we we are at this moment where we're maybe at the tail end of a kind of the celebration of tech as a form of good in its own respect. I mean, I, am sure, um, but you know, but that you, but you're right to suggest that it's, it's certainly not, hasn't been extinguished entirely, certainly not in Silicon Valley. So you have the, you know, you have the persistence of that argument, which goes back, you know, goes back uh, quite, quite a while. You know, standard oil, um, you know, Rockefeller would, would, um, would often point to the fact that he brought light to to, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, to, to communities all over the, the, the country. And uh, yeah, so, um, but, but I, I think one very, just going back to sort of an earlier conversation, I think one really important uh, dimension to the contemporary critique, it's not new, but I think the amount of focus on, on it now is, is new, like the, the amount of actual scrutiny um, and that that's, you know, really attending to, or seeing beyond the kind of platitudes about what, good is being done through technology or through enterprise and entrepreneurialism and thinking about the, you know, the costs of of those technologies and and lining them up against philanthropy. This this is, you know, the kind of right-hand, left-hand argument that I think is often the dominant one on on social media. You know, and sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating, um, but, but overall I think it's, you know, it's enormously powerful. And, and, and so, and I think, you know what it what it often has done is in this weird way. I think you were kind of you you were you were um, referencing someone like um, Andrew Carnegie, who thought about philanthropy as a way to kind of justify the accumulation of wealth, and and you know that was an explicit kind of dimension of, of his gospel of wealth, um, you know, written um, hundred and uh, nearly 150 years ago. Um, but but these days, I think philanthropy has a weirdly opposite role, which is it actually is sort of drawing attention back to the technology or the source of accumulation and increasing scrutiny on the problematic nature of of uh of enterprise and sometimes even delegitimizing wealth you know so philanthropy has is is i don't think uh, you know you still hear lots of arguments about philanthropy as a way that you know performs all this reputation laundering um but if you actually follow a lot of the you know the the kind of chains of arguments uh, uh, on social media and in the media more generally. Um, when you know when large donors give gifts, I think it's it often um, kind of directs attention backwards, and you get more people thinking about well, where did this money come from. Um, you know what exactly is the source of this money, both in terms of the largest structures of political economy and the actual modes of, of production. Um, you know that's definitely true with someone. Like Jeff Bezos, um, I, I think it it uh, it very well might start to be more true with, with someone like Elon Musk, and so that that means I think philanthropy's role now in like larger discourse about political economy is much more complicated um, than, than you know than it's traditionally uh, been considered. Certainly, more, much more complicated than Andrew Carnegie uh, thought, but also much more complicated than I think some of like the harshest critics um, imagine. Um, it, you know, it's now really. I think, almost the central node of how many people think about what's fair and what's just in, in the world in which we live. Um, and that's, you know, that's, I think, a, a a really powerful place to be.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that, that idea that philanthropy kind of unavoidably has to be contextualized, particularly against where the wealth has come from in the first place. And there's no question of separating the sort of left hand of how it was accumulated from the right hand of attempting to do good through giving it away. It does It does seem like one of those areas where there's a much more clear consensus if not on a sort of 100% consensus on that and you know the idea of doing good with bad money seems quaintly old-fashioned in, in a lot of ways. Um, I just wanted to I'm aware I'm in danger of taking up far too much of your time Ben because I could uh, talk about this stuff for ages but I just wanted to, to come on because we, we sort of touched on it there that there's this sort of broader question of where wealth is created and that that seems to me a sort of wider version of a very old problem probably the oldest problem philanthropy which is that one of Tainted wealth and the idea that some sources of wealth are kind of have um, ethical concerns attached to them that mean that even when you want to do good through giving them away, you, the balance doesn't quite work out. Um, I just just wanted to ask because you wrote a really interesting piece recently that sort of touched on this in the light of things like the um, the controversy around the Sackler family, asking whether part of the problem or at least one dimension of it is that very often the the benefit to the donor. Um, The reputational benefit is avert because there's become such a norm of offering naming rights Mm, on institutions or or kind of buildings, and that actually we could partially solve the problem by overcoming that. Do do you think it would be better? So, say as a thought experiment, if you have a donor and their money is some is seen to be tainted by you know some group of people, if they give anonymously and claim no benefit for it, is that then sort of okay? from their point of view and from the point of view of the recipient organization. And so mm. does that sort of shift us away from a norm of transparency in some sense? Yeah,
1: yeah, good, good question. I, I, I sort of mentioned this very briefly. This is the piece I wrote recently in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. So my issue is I think that there are um, three dimensions to, to naming rights that I think have all been kind of conflated um one is a, per, a purely transactional or a contractional obligation between the donor and the and the beneficiary institution where you know it's it's the most cynical version where you, you give me money if I give you money I want I want my name on the wall um and I think you know we can all agree that's pretty problematic especially from a tax uh, perspective because that um the IRS basically has decided that that benefit is 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 not is not valued in in the um you know in the calculations of of um what is tax deductible, but then there are these two other uh, rationales um that I think are that you know are, are i think too often kind of mixed. one is this sense of institutional gratitude um I, I know there's a lot of discomfort with um the public being grateful to to a philanthropist and you know that touches on this idea of. You know what is this idea of, of um, who has the right to this money in the first place and where it came from, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it's unusual or, or, or wrong for an institution to be grateful um, because there's a you know there's a host of different institutions that money could have gone to, and and it certainly gratitude in that respect seems so, certainly understandable. Putting a name on an institution, though, I think ver- um, blends into a third idea, which is this idea of kind of combining the identity of the donor and the identity of the institution, and therefore the identity of, of the values in which that institution embodies and has been rooted in. And so, you know, what I, I would, I explicitly said, I, I don't mean, when I say that I think you have to reconsider naming rights that we should necessarily embrace an ethic of anonymity. I do think there's issues with transparency there. Sometimes it may be appropriate, but I, I, I do not feel comfortable um, kind of offering that as, as, a, as, a, uh, as a, a full uh, alternative. Um, but I think, for instance, institutions could very easily, dis- or could try harder, let me say, to disentangle the kind of imperatives of gratitude, say with a plaque or with a you know a, a a a dinner. There's all sorts of ways in which you can show that you appreciate a gift, but that that don't um, send a message and and, and don't kind of um, corrupt the public square with the sense that the people who we value, the institutions that we value, are all associated with people who made lots of money, and, and that seems to be a real corruption of. You know, of of, this, of whatever, however you want to define what, what a public value is or, or the, the way in which values are, are uh, manifested in in the, in the public space. It, it does not make sense to me when I stop to think about it, that when you look around at, at who, who is now named on, our, on many of our buildings, they are not people who's, you know, who we necessarily want to celebrate for any inherent virtue. They're people who have just made lots of money. And and the act of and if we are celebrating a, a virtue, it's the act of giving, which itself is you know can only, can sometimes be exhausted by that gift itself and doesn't extend to any other um, you know element of their personalities. And so you know I think the larger picture of of uh, larger point I want to make in the piece is you know th- there are there are issues about philanthropy which um, can be traced to the relationship between a donor and an institution. But I think what we what we've seen is that the public has certain rights. Um, and certain interests that need to be defended as well. And maybe one of the you know defining um, characteristics of your work, of my work, I mean, many of the people that really focus on on philanthropy in a larger um, framework, is is bringing that public interest more into the conversation and and kind of um, you know thinking about it as as a co-equal um, voice uh, in, in the donor grant uh, beneficiary institution relationships. And if you do that, um, then you know thinking carefully about what those names mean, what the what the names do, you know what 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 purpose they serve, um, what value they can have. You know, I think you you start to think of it very differently. And I'll just end here. One of the alternatives I offered, and I would love to see this happen, well, um, is more people making donations based on uh, if they want to claim naming rights, um, having those naming rights be based on people that they admire and want to be celebrated um, it, it publicly, especially people who have not had the chance before. Uh, so people you know, who have been marginalized or because they're not wealthy and powerful, uh, you know, haven't had the chance to, to be celebrated. I think that offers an enormous opportunity. And so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a way that, that, um, you know, still maintains the legitimacy of of large scale giving. Sees it as an important part of of how you know many of our institutions are able to be to sustain themselves, but also really tries to think about you know the place of philanthropy uh, with respect to public values and, and and the public interest more generally.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think yeah, playing an an additional role there in sort of rebalancing some of the the inequities of history that have kind of hidden uh, figures who might otherwise be known, I think would be a powerful additional role I, I just just suddenly strike me i wonder just when you were saying there but you know your point about um the fact that people shouldn't necessarily be rewarded simply for having accumulated that wealth and making the gift in the first place because in some ways the gift almost sort of exhausts itself in the act of being made i guess the idea that that the the alternative would be for people to have naming rights but the right to sort of nominate somebody else's name opens up the intriguing possibility that you might end up with Buildings or institutions named after a donor, but only because somebody else decided that they were so admirable that they wanted to name exactly. it. And then and in that case, I guess that's fine. They've sort of earned it in some sense that's more indirect. In fact, that's
1: that's the final point I make in this chronicle piece. That basically it, it if you if it is that if you really insist on having a building named after you, there is an
0: avenue open for you. And that is to live live an exemplary life. Yeah, absolutely. It's that easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Go
1: to it. Yeah, Yeah.
0: Uh, listen Ben uh, I won't take up any more of your time I keep talking about this stuff for ages but um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have a chance to chat to you on the podcast and um, just before you uh, I'll let you go just have you got anything that you particularly want to flag up that you've got coming up in terms of publications or events or anything like that no no all I'll say is that Roger you're,
1: you're a, a tremendous asset to us all you know I, I um, really admire your work and um, just thanks for everything you do it's, it's terrific oh thanks Ben <laughs> cheers okay
0: bye bye Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Ben for coming on the podcast. It was great as ever to have a chance to catch up with him and get his thoughts uh, on what's been going on in philanthropy you know enormous amount of food for thought there and certainly lots of things that kind of got me thinking a lot Um, I'll put links in the show notes to things that are relevant to to what we're talking about things that's been that Ben's written recently things that I've written Um, if you're interested in checking out some of the other episodes of the podcast do look at the website which is philanthropisms.com and you can also find an email address there where you can get in touch if you've got ideas for topics that we could cover on the show or people that I could talk to if you want more sort of uh, thoughts and uh, probably less formed thoughts on philanthropy do uh, check out my twitter feed at rodri underscore h underscore davis or at for if you want stuff that's more sort of about history and theory of philanthropy um, i'll also put links in the show notes to where you can find ben on twitter because i'd certainly recommend uh, checking out his profile for some perhaps more considered thoughts about philanthropy and um, other than that just you know it remains to say like subscribe please do tell anyone about the podcast that you think might be interested in checking it out and other than that we'll